Hello and welcome back to the Rewatch Rewind. My name is Jane, and this is the podcast where I count down my top 40 most frequently rewatched movies in a 20-year period. Today, I will be celebrating Christmas in July by discussing number 18 on my list, Liberty Films and RKO's 1946 holiday classic, It's a Wonderful Life, directed by Frank Capra, written by Francis Goodrich, Albert Hackett, Frank Capra, and Joe Swirling, based on a story by Philip Van Doren Stern, and starring James Stewart and Donna Reed. George Bailey, James Stewart, has always had big dreams of traveling and building things, but instead he's stuck in his small hometown of Bedford Falls, New York, managing the family building and loan business. When his absent-minded Uncle Billy, Thomas Mitchell, misplaces $8,000 of company money, George feels that he is worth more dead than alive and plans to end his life on Christmas Eve, when he is stopped by Clarence Oddbody, Angel Second Class, Henry Travers, who has been sent from heaven to save him. George tells Clarence he wishes he'd never been born, so Clarence shows George what the town would be like without him. As I mentioned before, my family didn't have a VCR in the 90s, but we did sometimes watch movies together when they came on TV, so we caught It's a Wonderful Life pretty much every year. I don't know exactly how old I was when I first watched it, but I do remember being confused that it was in black and white. Once we finally got a VCR, we taped it one year so we could watch it whenever we wanted, and then eventually we got it on DVD. At some point, we decided that it made a good Thanksgiving movie in addition to a Christmas one, since it's about being grateful for what you have, so I tended to watch it once or twice a year for a while. I'd probably seen it about ten times before I started keeping track, and then I saw it once in 2003, once in 2004, twice in 2005, once in 2006, three times in 2008, twice in each year from 2009 through 2012, and then once each in 2013 and 2014, and then once in each year from 2020 through 2022. I don't remember exactly why I took such a long break after 2014, and I think it was probably a combination of factors, but I do remember reading an article probably around then arguing that Bedford Falls actually would have been more fun without George, and that he should have gone to jail anyway. That kind of ruined the movie for me a bit. While I recognize that there are legitimate criticisms to be made of the story and message and other details, such as the nonsensical decision to make AS2 the abbreviation for Angel Second Class, for me, the good definitely outweighs the questionable. For one thing, the acting is superb. Everybody's at the top of their game, with character actors such as Ward Bond, Frank Phelan, and Beulah Bondi doing some of their best work, and some very impressive child acting, particularly from Bobby Anderson and Carolyn Grimes. Thomas Mitchell knows exactly when to play Uncle Billy's memory issues for comic relief and when to reveal how devastating they can be. Henry Travers similarly gives the audience a perfect balance of chuckles and tears. Frequent femme fatale Gloria Graham makes the initially shallow Violet Bick surprisingly sympathetic. The character of Mary Hatch Bailey is also deceptively simple on the surface, but Donna Reed brings her to life with so much warmth and depth and complexity that it takes several rewatches to fully appreciate her. Lionel Barrymore perfectly embodies the evils of capitalist corruption as Potter in one of the most diabolical villain performances of all time. And then there's James Stewart. My man, Jimmy. I'm kind of surprised I haven't had an opportunity to talk about him on this podcast before now, since he's definitely one of my faves. His performance as George Bailey is so good. Just thinking about it gives me chills. 
we see George go from a young man full of hopes and dreams to a frustrated, drained, broken, middle-aged man at the end of his rope, to a man trying to make sense of the reality of his non-existence, who ultimately learns that he's a better and more important person than he thought he was. It's a major emotional roller coaster, and Jimmy Stewart absolutely nails every moment of the ride. It's rare for a Hollywood film to let a male protagonist get anywhere near as emotionally raw and vulnerable as George Bailey is at several points throughout this film, but Stewart was clearly not afraid to cry on screen, and it's beautiful to watch. The sets and visual effects are also beautiful and noteworthy. Falling snow on film used to be created with cornflakes painted white, but a new snow effect using fire extinguisher foam mixed with soap and water was developed for It's a Wonderful Life. Using this allowed the sound to be recorded live, which had been impossible with crunchy cornflakes, and I feel like it enhanced the performances to not have to record the dialogue separately. The Bedford Falls set was one of the longest sets that had ever been made for an American movie, and the streets and buildings do an excellent job of bringing the audience into the town. Apparently, three different cinematographers worked on this movie. They kept getting fired due to disagreements with the director, but the look and feel of the film is remarkably consistent and unique. Plenty of movies set in small towns were made during this era, but somehow none of them feel quite like this one. That could just be my own nostalgia, since this was the first one I saw, but there's just something about Bedford Falls that sets it apart from other movie settings, and that's a big part of what I love about this movie. The sets and the lighting and the performances are so engrossing that no matter how many times I rewatch it, I still feel like I'm part of the town, and like I'm interacting with the characters in a fresh and unique way. It's interesting that I'm talking about two 1946 movies in a row because I think that, like Notorious, It's a Wonderful Life could really only have been made that year. James Stewart had left Hollywood to fight in World War II and was considering giving up acting for good when Frank Capra asked him to star in this film. Capra had spent the war making documentaries and propaganda films, and this was also his first post-war movie. Now, I've never fought in a war, and my parents are baby boomers, so I definitely wasn't around for World War II, but it stands to reason that their wartime experiences significantly impacted the people involved in making this film and were still fresh on their minds. Stewart apparently said that his PTSD and depression from the war helped him relate to George Bailey, and that acting out George's anger and frustrations was cathartic for him. The U.S. was also at its most anti-fascist at this time, as James and I briefly discussed last week, which I assume is what allowed this movie to be so blatantly anti-capitalist. Building and loan associations don't really exist anymore, but based on my understanding of the Bailey business from this movie, they seem kind of like mutual aid mortgages. Because George holds on to this institution, the people of Bedford Falls are able to afford to buy decent homes for themselves. The alternative that Potter wants is everyone paying him exorbitant rent. By capitalist standards, George is a failure and was incredibly foolish for turning down Potter's lucrative job offer in the middle of the movie but the film portrays him as a hero precisely because he values people over money. When he's at the end of his rope, Potter has the power to save him, especially because he's the one who has the cash that Uncle Billy lost, but he refuses. It's George's friends and family who rally around to help him, and that sounds like something that would have been considered dangerously close to socialism in the McCarthy era. The Hollywood Blacklist started in 1947, so I feel like It's a Wonderful Life couldn't have been made even a year later than it was without significant modifications. One of the main focuses of the story is the romance between George and Mary, but I feel like even that is used as a demonstration of the shortcomings of our capitalist society. 
They are clearly drawn to each other, but George initially tries to pretend otherwise, in large part because he doesn't feel good enough for her. She has a college education. He does not. Their wealthy friend, Sam Wainwright, is interested in Mary, and George feels like she would be better off with Sam, even though all she wants is George. They spend all their honeymoon money on supporting building and loan clients during a bank run, at Mary's suggestion, but George later regrets that he couldn't afford to provide for both his clients and his wife. Mary is perfectly happy with their life, but George feels like a failure by society's standards and can't see anything else, so he needs Clarence's reality check to show him that he has always been enough for her. If George wasn't constantly being bombarded with the message that he should be making more money, that he should have been able to leave Bedford Falls and make something more of himself, that he should be able to buy his wife and children extravagant things, maybe he could have been happy without divine intervention. But also we need to talk about what happens to Mary in the alternate reality when George doesn't exist because I have some very mixed thoughts about that. Earlier, right after George turned down Potter's offer, he asked Mary why she married a guy like him, and she replied, to keep from being an old maid. So when George doesn't exist, she is an old maid. I remember as a teenager who didn't know that being Arrow Ace was a thing and didn't want to examine why I only ever had crushes on celebrities who were already dead, thinking that Mary's attitude made perfect sense. If you can't marry Jimmy Stewart, why get married at all? The part that has always confused me is when George begs Clarence to tell him where Mary is and Clarence says, you're not going to like it, George. Wouldn't he like it less if she had married someone else? Isn't it good that she's consistent with her assertions that he's the only man for her? I like to think that Mary is on the aromantic spectrum and feels romantic attraction so rarely that if she hadn't met George, she would never have felt it at all, but even I have to admit that the movie isn't really trying to say that. It seems to be implying that Mary ending up a librarian with no husband is the worst possible fate for her, which is an infuriatingly amatonormative attitude for a story that otherwise encourages resistance to societal pressures. But overall, I give George and Mary's romance a pass, because I do think they have a fascinating dynamic, and also because the movie focuses a lot on community and other non-romantic relationships, too. There's a lot of emphasis on family relationships, and the brotherly bond between George and Harry that is slightly tinged with envy is particularly well done. Harry gets a lot of opportunities that George wants, but George chooses to be happy for and supportive of him rather than resenting him too much. And Harry's toast at the end, to my big brother George, the richest man in town, is one of the moments guaranteed to make me cry every time. When George is young, he kind of looks down on his father, but finally starts to appreciate him shortly before his death, although not quite enough to understand that it's good that he follows in his father's footsteps. His relationship with his mother is very sweet, and the part when she doesn't recognize him is perhaps the most devastating moment in the movie. I really wish we got to see George interact with his children a bit more. We mostly see them when he's taking out his work frustrations on them, which doesn't seem like a typical interaction. His scene with Zuzu and the flower is adorable, though. And then there are all the friendships. I don't know if the Sesame Street characters were named after them, but Bert the cop and Ernie the cab driver have a fun relationship with each other and with George, and I appreciate that we get glimpses of how miserable they both are in the alternate reality. Violet is another interesting character, and at some points it almost seems like she's being set up as a romantic rival for Mary, but she and George remain a rare good example of male-female friendship. And there are so many other great interactions between the townspeople. It feels like a real community. And it is that community of friends and acquaintances that come together at the end to help George and show him that he's not alone, and that he has made a positive difference in all their lives. 
Granted, it's very clear that Mary is the most important person to him, so the movie does reinforce the relationship hierarchy established by amatonormativity. But at the end, what does Clarence write in the book? No man is a failure who has friends. I want to talk a little bit about representation in this film. There is only one black character, Annie, played by Lillian Randolph, who is predictably a maid. And while she is a pretty awesome character, she's not in very much of the movie, and all the other characters are white. Disappointing, but not surprising for a 1940s Hollywood film. Similarly, while we get a few fabulous female characters, there are a lot more men than women. However, I feel like this movie has better disability representation than the average 2020s movie. It's a Wonderful Life shows that it's not that hard to incorporate an actor's disability into a movie without it being the main focus of the story or the character. They really said, you use a wheelchair? Awesome, your character uses a wheelchair now. Of course, they were probably willing to provide more accommodations for the legendary Lionel Barrymore than they would have for an unknown disabled actor, but even he had been replaced in the 1938 film version of A Christmas Carol, in which he'd been slated to play Scrooge because he couldn't walk anymore. So I really like that It's a Wonderful Life showed how effectively he could play a Scrooge-like character without walking. I also really appreciate that It's a Wonderful Life is very similar to A Christmas Carol, but kind of flipped. A Christmas Carol motivates the wealthy miser to change his behavior by showing him how happy people would be without him. It's a Wonderful Life motivates the poor man to change his self-perception by showing him how unhappy people would be without him. A Christmas Carol's message is that nobody is beyond redemption, which I do believe, but It's a Wonderful Life responds with, let's be realistic, the extremely rich aren't going to change their ways, we need to do what we can to limit their power. Which is a message that, if anything, has only gotten more relevant in the last 77 years. Most of my top 40 movies are fun, silly entertainment that I use to escape the harshness of reality. But while this movie does have some fun moments, it's less of an escape and more of a reflection of that harshness. I watch movies like Emperor's New Groove and Mamma Mia and Bringing Up Baby and Ella Enchanted when I need to laugh. I watch It's a Wonderful Life when I need to cry. Sometimes I have trouble regulating or understanding my feelings, and a big part of what I love about movies is the way they let us experience deep emotions in a relatively safe and controlled environment. It's a Wonderful Life has been scorned by some film critics as overly sentimental, and perhaps it is. But I guess I don't see anything wrong with being overly sentimental every once in a while. Sometimes you just need to feel feelings. Thank you for listening to me discuss another of my most frequently rewatched movies. Next up is the shortest in a four-way tie of movies I watched 22 times in the last 20 years, which is another one that I had seen many times before I started keeping track. As always, I will leave you with a quote from that next movie. This is yet another example of the late neoclassic Baroque period, and as I always say, if it's not Baroque, don't fix it!